Open your Bibles uh, with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. I'm going to finish chapter 18 this morning, unless the Lord comes for us first. Wouldn't that be great? Like, get halfway through the message. It's like, oh. <laughs> so, as Paul is, we're going to look at him wrapping up his second missionary journey this morning. Uh, remember, he's been ministering in, uh, in Europe. Uh, he had been in Thessalonica, got chased out of there, had to go to Berea, got chased out of there, went to Athens. Things didn't go so great there, even though he had some really profound things to say. Headed over to Corinth, and he had left Silas and Timothy up in Berea. Uh, and as he's in Corinth, uh, he, he gets into town. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a, a place to stay. And he, he uh, meets up with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla and finds out that they're tent makers. They share a common trade, uh, which would have been a big deal back in those days. I mean, they didn't travel by air or even by bus. They, they walked. And when it got dark, you pitched your tent and took off again in the morning. So anyway, they... His physical needs had been met, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 18 that at that point he begins to go to the synagogue every Shabbat, every Sabbath, and to begin to reason with the people, to share the gospel, to present from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he does that until Silas and Timothy meet back up with him in Corinth, and uh, as he's in Corinth ministering, he's again working and ministering, but they bring an offering from the Philippian church, which frees Paul up to be able to fully devote himself to the ministry of the word. And so he jumps in. Uh, and as he devotes himself to the word, the Jews, they, they literally stood against him. Uh, we're told that they, they and, and I picture in my mind them lining up outside the synagogue saying, you're not getting in. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, we don't know exactly how it came down, but, but it was a physical opposition. Uh, we can tell by the original text that that's what happened. They weren't just saying, hey, you know, we object. <laughs> They're saying, no, <laughs> you're not going any further, buddy. And so what Paul does at that point, he rejects their rejection. He shakes his clothes, his garments, which means there's not going to be one speck of dust from this synagogue on my body let alone my shoes, because we see where Jesus instructed his guys, shake the dust off your feet while he shakes all of his clothes and the whole thing. So he's essentially saying, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to the Gentiles. <laughs> so what does he do? There, there's a guy next door whose name is Justice. We looked at that last week. Gaius Titus Justice, probably the same guy that we see as Gaius in Romans 16 that Paul says is my host. Well, he owns the house next door to the synagogue. And so Paul essentially says, ah, from now on, I go to the Gentiles. And he goes next door, <laughs> sets up shop and begins to minister there. Well, as a result, uh, this, uh, Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, the head honcho, one of them, there was two, one oversaw the physical needs, one oversaw the, the reading of the word and all that. I'm not going to get into all that, but Evidently, the, the Christmas was the ruler. He was the head guy at the synagogue. Well, he comes to faith in Christ. And so he like moves next door as well. All of his household come with him. 
And when we're told that the Holy Spirit is, is just being poured out, many of the Corinthians responding to the gospel believed and were baptized, we're told there in the beginning of chapter 18. So uh, <laughs> as we looked at that, as we wrapped up last week, uh, we looked at verses 9 through 11 here. Now, Paul, remember, he got to Corinth and when he got there, he was weary. Uh, it says, he said, I came to you in fear and trembling. And, and I, man, I determined not to know anything among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because, you know, Athens hadn't gone so well. There was no church planted in Athens like there had been in every other city that he went to. Uh, he had been dismissed by the Stoics and the Epicureans up on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. Uh, and so he gets to Corinth and he says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going down the philosophical route. I'm just going to tell people about Jesus. And that's what he does. So, but he's still got some residual. I mean, this guy's been run out of half the towns in, in the empire, been beat up, left for dead, drug out of town. Uh, and, and this, uh, we're going to see when we get into his third missionary journey, I mean, he just continues to go through it all the way up through his trip to Rome. I mean, one thing after another. But what was interesting here is in verses 9 through 11, uh, I'll just look at that quickly before we get started with this morning's text. Uh, he says, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, not a dream, a vision. And there's a difference. I'm not going to get into yeah, the, the nuts and bolts on that, but the Lord comes to him in a vision and he says, do not be afraid, but speak. Don't keep silent. In other words, Paul, I've got this. I know what's happened to you. And, 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 and he says, I, I'm with you. Uh, looked at last week, he could have said, well, yeah, Lord, you were with me in all these other places. And I still got, got a, had a lot of trouble. Uh, but he says, he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm with you. No one will attack you or hurt you. For I have many people in this city. In other words, here, the Lord in Corinth is saying, I've got a lot of people that I want you to reach. So I don't want you to hold back. I know that you've been beat up. I know that things have been rough, really rough, rougher than you or I will probably ever experience as a result of our testimony of Christ. And yet, and yet, God gives him this promise and he tells him in this vision not to hold back because there are many people in the <laughs> Corinth. Remember, we looked at that. It was a moral septic tank. And I mean, it was, if you were called a Corinthian, you were either known as a pervert or a drunk. I mean, it was, it was, there was a lot going on, a lot of sexual deviant activity, a lot of idol worship, a lot of just stuff. It's like everything that the world can throw on, that the world can pile on, you got when you went to Corinth. And God says, I want to reach these people and I want to use you to do it. So therefore, I don't want you to be afraid. I think it's marvelous. Folks, we've got to have in our heads. Uh, I closed last week talking about the black hat, white hat thing, you know, where we can get to thinking that, well, we've got the white hats and look at those, look at those druggies, look at those people, look at that drunk, look at that, and we can fill in the blank. Remember what Paul's reminding, or God is reminding Paul here, those are people for whom Christ died. And so there's no room for arrogance. Because if it's not for the grace of God, we all, every single one of us has a black hat. 
and we would be dead in our sins were it not for his grace. We'll talk about that towards the end this morning. So uh, he has this vision, and and, and, and Luke then, <laughs> it's interesting. I like the way that Luke writes, and Luke is kind of fast-paced at this part of the book of Acts. He immediately gives us an example of the protection that, that God uh, promised as we go on and we look at beginning in verse 12. So in verse 12, beginning there, it says, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Yeah, well, we've got the goods on him, Gallio, and we want you to do something about it. <laughs> I love it. Now, you got to understand something about the proconsul. He is way higher than we looked at in Philippi, the magistrates. They were like the city mayor and the, the local guys. This guy is the governor of, it would be like the governor of a state. And the proconsul was, he was given his power directly by the Roman Senate. So he is an important dude. And they drag in Corinth, I mean, it's the capital of Achaia, and they drag Paul before the proconsul, and they're thinking, you know, you've got to do something with this guy. Now, the last time we saw, there's one other proconsul mentioned in the book of Acts, and that was Sergio Paulus. Remember him uh, on the um, island of uh, Cyprus. Cyprus. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you get an A. Uh, we have a donut for you in the back. Um, anyway, Sergio Paulus on Cyprus, and that meant he was the governor of the entire island. And it's a big place, a big island. So this guy has a lot of clout. So uh, it says that when they took them, took Paul to the judgment seat, that's an interesting phrase because the word for judgment is the word bima, all right? And catch that, we're going to talk about towards the end as well. And what it is, the bima seat was the seat of judgment uh, for Roman justice. It was, a, it was a raised platform. It was also used in sporting events when they awarded medals to the victors of the races and all of that. So it was essentially a place where official business was done. Uh, and uh, archaeologists, I've got a slide here, archaeologists, they've excavated and, and identified the Bema seat in Corinth, a marble seat, a raised platform. You see the picture here. Uh, that it, this is the same one where Paul was drugged before by the Jews. So now their accusation against Paul was he's per persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now that's an interesting statement, and I'll tell you why. Because Gallio, now remember, he's directly empowered by the Roman Senate. And the Jews claimed that Christianity was in violation of their laws and therefore was not a part of Judaism. It was a big deal and it was a critical legal issue. This would be like taking something before, you know, the high courts and saying, we need you to make a decision on this sect, the way, the, the, the Christianity, because this guy's telling people things that are contrary to our law because Judaism was it was recognized in the empire as a legal religion. I mean, religions were <laughs> declared to be legal or illegal, and there were a lot of them. Now, if Gallio had ruled on the charges against Paul, Christianity would have become an illegal re religion, 
And as it was, though, Christianity enjoyed political protection because of this event. Because when Gallio ruled, actually he refused to rule, and we'll talk about that as we go, uh, it essentially became a form of protection for the church, uh, both legally and we'll see practically too here as we go, uh, because it was it, Christianity was seen as a sect of Judaism by the Romans. They didn't look at the difference, the distinguishing marks between Christianity and Judaism because Christianity came out of Judaism, but it's separate from, and we know that, we're not Jewish here. But they didn't look at it that way. They looked at it as all as one big religion. And so Gallio says, look, I'm not going to worry about this. So as a result, Christianity would be protected by law all the way for another 10 or 12 years until Nero came to power. And then he began an extensive, cruel persecution of the church at that time. So uh, in verses 14 and 15, we see that Gallio, he makes two strong implications here. Uh, I'll explain as we go. In verse 14, he says, and when Paul was about to open his mouth, I, I picture Paul like, uh, and Gallio going, hold on a second. <laughs> Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes implied, which it is not, oh Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if, it's a question of words and names in your own law. The implication there is which it is. Look at it yourselves. I don't want to be a judge of such matters. Stop. You're bothering me. This is essentially what he's doing here. Now, this is where we see God's protection with Paul in a natural, supernatural way. God had promised to protect Paul. He, had pro- he said, look, I'm with you. Don't hold back. Don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of this. And immediately the Jews, when they rise up against him, like they had in so many other cities, and their efforts come to nothing. Not only do they not come to anything, God is showing Paul, he's demonstrating that he is faithful to his word and that he will protect him. Now, he didn't just open the sky and swallow up the Jews or the ground or whatever. He, he, no, he does it in a natural, supernatural way. And that's how God works in our lives. Folks, I don't know how many times I have prayed and, and I will see something and I'll go, wow, that's surprising. And I probably shouldn't be surprised. Because God is moving, he's working. All of a sudden, I'll see someone change their mind or I'll see some events come to bear or something will happen. And, and I just, it, it's like, I call it things that make you stand back and say, huh, wow, Lord, look at what you're doing there. Well, that's what's happening here. God is being faithful to his word to Paul. It doesn't, Luke doesn't say, now God is being faithful to his word, but he is being faithful to his word to Paul. He's using this pagan proconsul to accomplish his will in Paul's life and to hold the Jews back from the persecution that they want to mount. I think it's fabulous. I, I love reading this. So Paul's about to, de- he's, he's about to defend himself, uh, but he doesn't get the chance. He tries to open his mouth, but he can't even talk. He doesn't get a chance to even say, hey, uh, <laughs> because Gallio, he just dismisses the whole thing. He, he immediately dismisses the matter. He says, you know what, Jews? You guys handle it. Uh, I, I'm not going to be bothered. Now, 
I want to, Gallio, he, I did some, uh, some background on him. He's an interesting guy. Uh, extra biblical sources tell us that he, he had a reputation as a pretty fair and competent uh, leader, a uh, political leader uh, in his day. Now, he was the brother of a guy by the name of Seneca. And you may have heard that from Roman you know, history. Uh, Seneca the Younger was what he was called. And he was a well-known Stoic philosopher. We looked at the Stoics here uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Seneca did a lot of writing. He wrote a couple of things, that, I mean, a quote that he wrote about his brother. He says, even those who love my brother Gallio to the utmost of their power do not love him enough. <laughs> Another quote, he says, and no man was ever as sweet to one as Gallio is to all. So Gallio is a fair-minded guy. And when he says, I don't want to hear it, he really is weighing the whole thing. He's seeing right through the Jews' manipulations, their attempts to manipulate him. And he sees their motives. They could really care less about Roman law. They want to get this, this guy Paul out of the way. And they want to try to use the proconsul to do it. How often do we see that playing out on the political stage in our world today to where the thing that's being done is really not the thing that they're after. The thing that's being put forth is really not the issue at hand. The narrative that's being supported is really not the truth. Well, it's nothing new under the sun, folks. This has been going on for a long time, and men trying to manipulate government authorities to their own ends is not new. It's, it's still a sickening, but it's not new. So uh, in verse 16, it says, and, and Gallio drove them out from the judgment seat. Now, I, I look at this and I think, score one for the team. You know, I mean, it's not very often that Paul, he doesn't even have a chance to open his mouth and, and he is totally vindicated of the whole thing. Galileo says, I don't want to hear it. Not only do I want, not want to hear it, he essentially looks at the Jews, he says, get out of here and get out of here now. Uh, <laughs> now, it's the only word that the place in, in the New Testament where this word drove it's a different, and I looked it up. Remember when Jesus drove out the money changers in the temple and all that? Not the same word. This word is a lot stronger word, and it implies the use of force. And he said, and it says that he drove them out of there. He was saying, he's being real clear. Leave now or face the consequences. So Gallio's done with these guys. Verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. <laughs> now, now, so Gallio looks the other way when the angry Gentiles beat Sosthenes, uh, the leader of the synagogue. Now, when Christmas had trusted Christ, evidently they came up with a new leader, this guy Sosthenes. <laughs> and uh, he was probably the guy that led the Jews in their, in their grabbing Paul and hauling them before Gallio. Well, the Gentiles didn't like it. And again, God is working behind the scenes because now we have, there's a legal precedent that's being set. Don't pick on the Christians. But there's also a practical aspect of this. You might get beat up <laughs> if you go too far with this. So, Christmas, I mean, 
he's been replaced by Sosthenes as the ruler of the synagogue. Now, we also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Sosthenes himself gives his life to Christ at some point because Paul talks about him in 1 Corinthians 1, 1, where he says, Paul and Sosthenes writing the letter to the church. So uh, the crowd and Gallio himself, uh, they were probably, and to be fair, they were probably more likely against the Jews than they were for Paul. They didn't know who this itinerant preacher was. Uh, anti-Semitism ran strongly, ran uh, very strongly in some parts of the empire back in the first century, as it does today in many places. But I want to take a minute and I want to look at the difference uh, between the the Philippian magistrates that we looked at in chapter 16. Remember when Paul was drugged before the Philippian magistrates? In the same, similar way that he gets drugged before the proconsul here, uh, and I want to look at the difference between them and Gallio. Now, the Philippian magistrates caved to the mob's manipulations. They just said, okay, yeah, that's right. These guys are bad. They're bad, bad guys. And they, so they strip Paul and, and Silas. Uh, they, they strip their clothes off and they have them beaten with rods. Remember, we talked about the lictors and the fascia rods and all of that. Okay, so they caved. And they punished these guys, and they later regretted it. Gallio stood with the Christians. <laughs> then he allowed the Greeks to beat their accusers. Now again, God's stepping in. Uh, you know what? Maybe we don't want to pick on Paul. Maybe we don't want to pick on these people that moved next door. Because the Gentiles were pretty angry that day when we took him before the proconsul, before the Bema seat. And we really don't want to face the, cro- the, the, the angry mob there or the government. So the, the, but the point in all of this is in both cases, the plans of those opposing the church backfired and the church was allowed to grow uh, free of government interference as a result. Now, you know, I look at uh, folks, uh, the word that comes to mind or the term that comes to mind with me is poetic justice. You know, there are just times where you think, yeah, and, and we don't rejoice in other people's suffering. We, you know, vengeance is, belongs to the Lord. It's not ours and all. And there's a place where you go, you know what? God saw to it that justice was done. We really don't have to worry about it because God's at work behind the scenes in all of this and he's working his purposes out. What's he doing in your life? What has he done in your life? You can take that, use it as a down payment on what he's going to do in your life because really he does the same thing with us as he does here. The Bible says he's no respecter of persons. These guys aren't just the famous Bible guys. No, we have equal status as these men here. And when God says, look, no weapon formed against you is going to prosper, guess what? No weapon that's formed against you will prosper. When he says, you know, I'm not going to allow anything to happen to you that's outside of my control, outside of the sphere of influence that I have in your life, guess what? Nothing can happen. Does that mean that we don't go through tough things? Did that, is that what it meant for Paul? No. What it meant was that the Lord was back in the background, but also intimately involved in the daily affairs of these men's lives. And we can take that to the bank. Verse 18, so Paul remained, still remained a good while in Corinth, 
Uh, Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. Now, unlike previous cities, Paul wasn't forced out of Corinth. So as he stayed a good while, he fulfilled the promise the Lord had made to him in verses 9 and 10, where he said, look, I have a lot of people in the city I want you to reach. So he sticks around and he fulfills that. He knows that he's got God's protection on his side. He doesn't get run out of town. He doesn't get attacked again. You know, God saw to it that that was all taken care of. So now last week we looked at Sancria, and that was the eastern seaport uh, on the Aegean Sea that was adjacent to Corinth. See on the slide here, the second slide, uh, Corinth was on the Adriatic Sea, and Sancria was on the Aegean Sea, and he would need to get across from Corinth to the Aegean Sea because that's where they would pick up a ship to go eastward. That's why I called, <laughs> I was looking at, how, what do I name this study? And, and, and I'm just like praying about it. And, and I thought, you know what? They cover so much ground at the in the last half of chapter 18 in Acts here. I mean, all of the ground that they had covered before up until this point uh, in like five verses, he's back where he started. So, uh, and, and he, he starts to head east. The, the Now, the return trip by sea would be a, a whole bunch shorter. Uh, it, again, as I mentioned, it starts in verse 18, it ends in verse 22. The second slider, the third slide I have here, shows Paul's entire second missionary journey. Now, the red line is outbound. There, see, he starts in Antioch over there on the right side the, at the top where the red line begins. They start in Antioch in Syria and they go through Asia Minor. Remember the Lord kept them from going north into Bithynia, kept them from going south into Asia. They go through to Troas and then they cross the, the Aegean Sea and they go to Philippi and then on down and around. We've been looking at that for several chapters. Again, in, in uh, the matter of five verses, we're going to finish up his, before we even get to the end of the chapter, we'll finish his second journey where he goes from Corinth or Sancria to Ephesus, drops off Priscilla and Aquila, and goes back to Caesarea Maritima, we'll talk about that in a minute, up to Jerusalem, and then back to Antioch where he started. That was, Antioch was his home church, and they were instrumental in his journeys, these first couple of journeys. So talking about the vow that Paul had taken, and there's some debate among scholars as to what kind of vow this was. I believe, and it probably was, the vow of a Nazarite. Uh, When it talks about he had his hair cut, uh, one of the, the aspects of somebody that had taken a Nazarite vow is that no razor would come to their head during the period of time for this vow. So what that was is a vow of consecration or being set apart to the Lord. Uh, we see it in Numbers chapter 6. There's a very extensive description of all of the aspects of this Nazarite vow in Numbers 6. Now, I believe that what was going on here was that God had honored Paul with his promise of protection uh, and that he would use Paul to reach many people in Corinth. Now, Paul, in turn, desired to honor God in consecrating himself, setting himself apart for God's use there in Corinth. So he was known also as one who would be all things to all people. I want to be careful here because Paul's not hung up 
on fulfilling the Mosaic law here. The law of Moses was terminated at the cross. I mean, yeah, Jesus fulfilled it. And so therefore men were released from it from that standpoint. It doesn't mean that it was bad. Certainly not. It's an expression of God's heart. And so, but Paul did want to reach the Jews. He did want to be able to reach. He had a great burden for his countrymen. You read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you'll see that, I mean, he just, his heart bled for the Jews, even though they were vicious towards him. Very often, he loved the Jews. And so I don't think that he did this because it was an act of legalism. We avoid that around here. And any good New Testament church will. We're not under the law, but I do believe that it was an act of love because he continued to want to reach the Jews. So he took this vow, this Nazarite vow, and now his time in Corinth is completed. He's finished the work there. And so finishing the work, he goes to Sancria, gets his hair cut off. And and he, he would take his hair with him. We'll get to that in a minute. There's some kind of weird aspects to that vow. I don't mean to sound irreverent, but I mean, I look at that and I think, wow, you take your hair to the temple and, and make an offering with it? Yeah, that's what they did. So anyway, as he's leaving now, he gets his hair cut at St. Cree. He's signifying the end of the vow, but there would be one part of the vow that would remain and that would be he would have to fulfill the vow in doing in, within 30 days of having his hair, his head shaved, he would present an offering at the temple in Jerusalem. And that would be how he would honor God through, through the end of this vow. Again, the motive of, for all of this was love for his fellow Jews, not legalism. And, and we'll spend more time, we'll talk about this more, because when Paul goes back to Jerusalem in chapter 21, the leaders of the church there have four guys that had taken this vow, and Paul has some interaction with them. So we'll examine that more closely then. But I believe that's what's going on here. Uh, verse 19, and he came to Ephesus. So they sailed from Sancria to Ephesus and he left them there. That's Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. I love it. I mean, you get Paul to stop in a town, you know where he's headed. <laughs> and he goes right to the synagogue. He begins to reason with the Jews. And we know he's not just saying, hey, let me talk to you a little bit. No, he pulls out the scroll and he says, let me show you here about this prophecy of coming Messiah. Now, let me tell you about Jesus. And because remember, we looked at that, that he would lay down a truth from God's word right alongside a truth of the person and the work of Christ. And he would illustrate the person and the work of Christ from the Old Testament scripture. Tons of places where even today that we can do that. Uh, The Old Testament is rich. Uh, in the scroll of the book, it's written of me, we're told. So it comes to Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is, it's the, the third largest city in the empire. I mean, this is not a small town either. Uh, it's the capital of Asia Minor. About a quarter of a million, it's estimated there were probably a quarter of a million people that lived there. Uh, we studied the book of Ex, Ex, uh, Ephesus, the book of Exodus, we studied the, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but I wanted to just give you a little bit of information. And we'll get into it more in chapter... Chapter 19 is all about Paul's ministry at, at Ephesus. 
so he comes there, uh, this huge city, and he's got Priscilla and Aquila with him. Now remember, Priscilla and Aquila are refugees from Rome. Remember, we looked at it when he got to Corinth. It said that they had been run out of Rome by Emperor Claudius when he threw the Jews out of Rome. He said, Jews no longer welcome here. And so they left, they went to Corinth. So they've been displaced. And it makes sense that they would go with Paul because they really are away from home. They would go with Paul to Ephesus and begin this new work. Now, obviously, uh, they built a, a solid relationship with Paul and Paul had no doubt observed that they had demonstrated faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, so they became useful to Paul in his ministry in starting this new work at Ephesus. So he drops them off there. This is the last stop uh, before Paul heads back to Israel. Uh, and, and I think it's interesting as we just kind of look back, we see that uh, he had now evangelized Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia. He'd evangelized Corinth, the capital of Achaia. That's northern Greece, southern Greece. And now back over in Asia, on the Asian coast, that's where Ephesus is, uh, he's evangelizing, or getting ready to evangelize the capital of Asia Minor. Now, uh, along with a, a lot of other smaller cities that were along the way. And true to form, even though his stay in Ephesus is going to be brief, he goes to the synagogue, begins to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Remember, there were people at the synagogue that were not, they had not yet fully converted to Judaism, but they were, they had become acquainted with, familiar with, and had come to honor the God of the Jews there. And so Paul would go right there. Now, he must have gotten their attention uh, because rather than reject him, similar to what he had seen uh, with so many churches, in a way that's similar to the Bereans, they want to know more. And we see that here in verse 20. Uh, it says, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I'll return against to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So keeping this particular feast was really important to him, most likely because of the time constraints involved with fulfilling his vow. Uh, again, we're, we're deep into interpretation, but when it says that he took a vow and he had his hair cut, we can assume that was a vow of a Nazarite and it was a time-limited vow. There were time constraints that within 30 days of shaving your head, you had to present your offering, which was there was an animal sacrifice and also <laughs> taking your bag of hair to the temple and presenting that to the priests as well. So He's doing this again. He wants to be a testimony to his countrymen. He wants to show them, look, I understand and, I, and I'm going along with the customs of our common religion. However, let me tell you about Jesus the Christ. He would use that to gain inroads with the Jews. So he wants to get back uh, to Ephesus, or to Jerusalem. Uh, and he says, God willing, I'll come back. And indeed, God is willing because uh, he would spend a greater amount of time in this city, Ephesus, 
than any other city on any of his journeys except for Rome, which was kind of mandatory because he was in chains. But he would come back on his third journey, and we'll look at that beginning next week. He'd spend a couple of years there. He would found a Bible school there, the school of Tyrannus. Uh, and uh, I mean, he would do a great amount of work. There would be a huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit. A church, a, a, a very large church would be born, probably many, many house churches in the city of Ephesus. So he's sort of setting the table for that now. He goes, he drops off Priscilla and Aquila, and then he's on his way. So he's going to cross the Mediterranean now, and he's going to come uh, from Ephesus to a place called Caesarea Maritima. Now, there are two Caesareas in Israel. One is Caesarea Maritima, uh, and in that place is on the coast. It's, it, it's still The ruins are still there. It's north of Tel Aviv. I remember when <laughs> Stacy and I were in Israel, she was busy trying to scoop up some shells and I'm going, come on, they're going to leave without us. Just a second, I want to get some... It was, it was just cute because we were in a hurry, but seeing the ruins there were just fabulous. Uh, anyway, King Herod had just done some marvelous architecture there. So Paul, is he's about ready to set sail on a 500-mile trip from Ephesus to Caesarea Maritima. The other Caesarea is Caesarea Philippi. And if you remember in Matthew chapter 16, that's where Jesus is standing with his men when he points to the hole in the ground because it's a huge pagan worship center. He's standing in front of the temple of Zeus and next to the temple of Pan. And he points to a hole in the ground and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's on the flanks of Mount Hermon, way up in the Golan Heights, in the, in the top, the northern part of Israel. That's Caesarea Philippi. So when it says he goes to Caesarea, don't get those two confused. They're two completely different places. This is where there's a seaport. Uh, it's a beautiful city. Uh, and it was built by Herod the Great. I have a slide here, uh, like a satellite photo looking down on what's left of the ruins at Caesarea uh, Maritima. And verse 22 says, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. The second slide here, though, before we move on from Caesarea, it shows the, a, an artist's depiction of what it probably close to what it looked like. Uh, there's still a huge outdoor arena there. That's where Paul was taken. Remember, he had to go before Agrippa and then Festus. Uh, uh, and and uh, I stood on the infield looking up at where the king would have come out. And it was just a, 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 a wonderful moment thinking about the history here in the book of Acts. Well, Herod had a palace built here. Uh, because he wanted to personally supervise the construction of a huge man-made harbor, which extended out from the shore, as you can see. Uh, the ruins, again, the ruins are still partially there, and there's still a lot of architecture that goes out into the Mediterranean. Um, Paul would later be imprisoned here, uh, prior to being sent to Rome to stand trial. Uh, and we'll take an in-depth look at Caesarea when we study Acts chapters 23 through 26 because they take place in this city. So right here, it's just a stop on the way. It says he spends a little bit, he lands there, and then he goes up and he greets the church, 
And he goes down to Antioch. Now, when it talks about that, when he, we're told that he goes up to Jerusalem in, to visit the church, and then down to Antioch. Now, Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So why does he say up to? Well, it's because Jerusalem's in the mountains. And Antioch is near the coast in Syria, uh, up to the north. So at this point, when he gets to Antioch, Antioch in Syria, uh, he's to the place where he and Silas had begun. Remember after their first journey, there, there was a, a, a ruckus that had taken place. And when they, or before their first journey, the, the guys from Jerusalem came up. Silas was with them. And, and they said, look, we need to send a letter out to all of these churches and say, and give instructions for the Gentiles and all. Well, that was when Silas came up. Silas decided to stick around. Uh, and Paul had the falling out with Barnabas there at the church in Antioch. And then he selected Silas to go with him on this second journey. So now coming full circle, we don't know where Silas is at this point. We know that Paul calls him by his Roman names. A lot of these guys, they would have two names. And it's kind of confusing unless you know that. They would have a Hebrew name and then they would have a Roman name. That's like Peter. Peter's name was Peter, but it was also Cephas. That was his Greek name. Peter was his Hebrew name. Uh, Paul was Paul and Saul. Well, Silas was Silas, and then Silvanus was his Roman name. And Silvanus is mentioned in a number of places throughout the rest of the New Testament. He ends up becoming a real asset. He goes back home. He was from Jerusalem. Well, not originally. He was from somewhere else. But he lived in Jerusalem, and he goes back to Jerusalem. He ends up being a real help to the apostle Peter in running the affairs of the church in Jerusalem. So all of that, just some background as, as we come full circle here. And uh, Paul is going, coming back uh, after he'd been gone for about three years on this second journey. The Antioch church had been instrumental also uh, in Paul's first and second journeys. And there's not much said about them here. But we have to assume that the people there, as I mentioned, this is home church that they would have been excited to see him. They would have been excited to hear about his travels and what the Lord had done through he and Silas, uh, finding out about picking up Timothy on the way, and then finding out about picking up Luke further down the road, and then all of the evangelization that went on in Europe and all. And now he's back. And I can just imagine that he spent some time with the people there and that they were thrilled to see what God was doing all over the empire. On a, a bit of a sad note, this would be Paul's last visit to his home church. Uh, he would take off, go on his third missionary journey, get back to Jerusalem and be arrested, be incarcerated for a couple of years at Caesarea Maritima, and then taken off to Rome, never to return to Israel again. So verse 23, and he had spent, when he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So now this begins his third missionary journey. There's not much of a break. Luke lets us know. He stops, it's like he gasses up, and now he's headed back out. And so he's on his way again now, and he's going up north from Antioch, Syria, into Asia Minor, going back to the churches that he had planted before. Now, 
as we've seen previously, uh, I want to stop for a minute too and talk about Paul's ministry. It was twofold in nature. Yes, he was a gifted, powerful evangelist. We know that. I mean, (laughs) the church would not be the church had it not been for his being used profoundly by God in traveling through the known world at that time in planting churches, spreading the gospel, seeing that these places that the people would begin to catch fire for the Lord and then they would go out. And then, I mean, that's been going on for 2000 years and it started here, started with this guy. So powerful evangelist, but he was also a pastor. He also had a shepherd's heart and it was his heart to go back and to strengthen the churches. He did that after his first journey. That's part of why he started out on his second journey He starts his second journey to strengthen the churches at Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Antioch, and the ones that they had planted the first time around because he wants to follow up. He wants to be sure that these people are getting grounded in Christ. He wants to know that false doctrine is getting pushed out of the church and that people are coming into a healthy place in their relationship with God. And folks, that's part of the job of the church today. Uh, Paul says in, in his letter to the Ephesians that, that the church's purpose, our purpose is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. How do you equip? You disciple people. And that's what he goes back to do because there's two sides to it. Evangelizing and discipleship. It's the heart of what Jesus says about the Great Commission in Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20. Uh, I'll read it. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul's been doing on on these trips. But Jesus goes on, he says, teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So making disciples is evangelism. Teaching them is discipleship. We preach to the lost and we teach those who have come to know Christ. That's why I won't give an evangelistic message every Sunday, and that's all I do. There are churches that they'll just give an evangelistic message every single Sunday. It's like, oh, wait a minute. No, you folks need to understand the word of God. You need to be able to apply God's word to your life. You need to be able to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And we all need that. I need that. All of us do. That's not going to happen If we just give you milk, Uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, you know, you ought to be teaching other people by now, but you still need milk. You still need the basic foundational doctrines of Christianity. There is a difference. It's preaching and teaching. So Paul goes back at this point. He begins his third journey with a push to go back and to visit the churches that he had already established just to check in to see how they're doing. Now, uh, he would have some things to say, like to the churches in Galatia. Read the book of Galatians. (laughs) He has some strong things to say to the churches in Galatia. Because people had come in, these false teachers had come in, and they begin to propagate false doctrine and try to compel people. You got to live by the law of Moses. Oh yeah, it's okay to live by the grace. Oh yeah, the grace of God. Yeah, 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 sure. Jesus, the cross. Yeah, yeah. But you got to still, you got to keep the laws of Moses. What are you doing eating that pork chop? You know, what that kind of stuff. It's like, no, craziness. And he says, no. Well, he probably didn't say that. <laughs> My little embellishment, because I like pork chops. But the point is, is that 
he's going back to follow up to strengthen the churches because he loves them, because he wants them to do well. Verse 24, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So now the scene shifts off of the Apostle Paul, who's off doing his thing, back to Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus with this guy Apollos that shows up from Alexandria. And that's Alexandria, Egypt. Now that was, it was a city, it was on the northern coast of Egypt, second largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, named after Alexander the Great, who had conquered (laughs) Egypt back in his day. Uh, Alexandria was a fascinating city. It had replaced Athens. Remember we talked about when we were looking at Athens, that Athens was about 500 years past her prime, definitely on the downslide. Well, while that was happening, Alexandria was coming up. And it had replaced Athens as a cultural and academic center of the ancient world. It's estimated there was a library in Alexandria and it's estimated there were upwards of 700,000 books in this library. It was, it was on multiple campuses and uh, there are different estimates, but I, one I kept reading as I was studying for this was 700,000. They kept saying, yeah, there was that many. And we're not talking... Printing presses hadn't been invented yet. These are all hand-scribed books. A huge center for academia and for learning. Had a large Jewish population as well. It's also believed that the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew scriptures, the Greek uh, called the Septuagint, uh, and, and very common, very popular, is probably... Uh, very often the scrolls that they read throughout the empire were the Septuagint, and that that was done, that that work was done in Alexandria because the scholars were there to be able to translate it accurately. Another thing about Apollos is it's pretty unusual for a Jew to be named after a Greek god. <laughs> I just think that that's kind of strange. I don't know why, and just throw that out there. But there must have been some background in his family or his family converted to Judaism. Perhaps they were proselytes. We don't know. Pretty easy to assume, though, that he was a highly educated Hellenistic Jew. In other words, a a Jew that was steeped in Greek culture. The Hellenists were, that's what they called them, Hellenists. Um, And that he had a great understanding of the scriptures. This guy was solid. You know, he's the type of guy that when he was, you go, yeah, that, that guy's solid. Yeah, I want to hear. I want to hear more what he has to say because he's really got. He's a very intelligent, very articulate, very grounded guy. Uh, he had a great understanding of the scriptures. He also had the ability to communicate the word of God to others. Now, there are some people that believe that Apollos is the same guy that wrote the Book of Hebrews. That's not my particular opinion, but it could have been. He has the qualifications. Hebrews is written in a higher form of Koine Greek, which was sort of the street Greek of the day, but it's got a lot more classical tones to it. Um, it, You would have to have a great understanding of Judaism as well as Christ and Christianity and the gospel. I mean, that's a fascinating book. We went through it here a couple of years ago or a few years ago now, but I don't know. We don't, nobody knows who the, the writer of the Hebrews was. I, I like to make jokes because I assume it was the Apostle Paul, uh, but we don't know. 
we do know that Apollos was a very learned man. He was a very articulate man. Verse 25, this man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. I think that that's a fascinating statement. I mean, they have all of these wonderful things to say about Apollos. And they say, you know what? What he knew, he taught well. But he didn't have the whole thing. He didn't have the whole picture. Uh, Verses 24 and 25 tell us five things about this guy. First, that he was an eloquent man. He was understandable. He was eloquent in his speaking. That he was mighty in the scriptures, number two. He was a man of God's word. Uh, and folks, I don't know about you, but I want to be known as a man of God's word. I mean, I think that if there's anything that a man or a woman can aspire to is to be a person who is just a person of the word. And he was. The third is that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was, he was a learned man. He was an under, he had great understanding. The fourth thing we see here is that Apollos was fervent in spirit. You know, have you ever used the term, that person's on fire for the Lord? That's what that means. He was on fire for Jesus. He was on fire for the Lord. He didn't have the whole picture, but he was on fire anyway. I like that. I remember being very young in the Lord. I mean, I gave my life to Christ. I came out of this weird religion I grew up in. And I was like, I just couldn't get enough. I had, I, it wasn't until I went to Bible college, I didn't even have a working understanding of what grace was. I remember thinking, oh, that's what that is. But I mean, I didn't care. I had this, just this partial understanding, and, but I was fervent. <laughs> and I, I just connect with that aspect of who this guy is. Uh, and that we're also told that he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. So he knew about Jesus, but apparently his knowledge was limited to Jesus's early ministry not the post-Calvary, post-resurrection gospel that these guys had come to know. So verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So Apollos shows up in Ephesus. He now goes to the synagogue. And I don't think he'd been coached. I think he just knew that that's where I want to go. And I want to talk about Jesus. And they took him aside because he goes to the synagogue. Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Uh, now, my hat's off to Priscilla and Aquila because they see Apollo's passion for God. It's clear to them. And to their credit, they don't, they don't see him as some kind of competition. Uh, they don't see him as being inadequate because he doesn't have the whole message. No, that's not what they do at all. They come alongside. They begin to further equip Apollos because they want to see him fulfill the obvious, obvious call of God that's upon this guy's life. And so they say, yeah, Apollos, come on, let's talk. Let's go have lunch or whatever it was. Let, let me tell you about the rest of the story. You guys remember Paul Harvey? Now, you know what the gospel is. Let me tell you the rest of the story. You know, that kind of a thing. So they want to give him the rest of the story. They want to give him a well-grounded understanding of the whole gospel, not just the 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 gospel uh, from John the Baptist, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the whole thing. This also tells us something about Apollos I want you to, uh, to see here too, that Apollos is humbly teachable. 
And that's a great example for us. This guy is a smart guy. He is a learned man. He is way more highly educated, I assume, than Priscilla and Aquila. And he doesn't blow them off. Say, yeah, well, whatever. He says, really? Let me know. Let me hear. What do you, what do you want to share with me? He's a great example. Because folks, no matter how much you know, how much I know, there's always more to learn. And, and God forbid that I ever get to a point where I am not teachable. We need to be teachable. We need to have understanding. We need to have a hunger for God. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. There's more to learn. And it's not just head knowledge. Get to that in a minute. Verse 27, and when he desired to cross to Achaia, this, this is Apollos, uh, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now you're talking. I, I think about that. It's like he gets the, the rest of the story and, and he's even more on fire. He can't wait to get out and to go and to serve the Lord. And he wants to go to Achaia. Now we, when he, he says he went to Achaia, we assume that he goes back to Corinth because he ends up having a great relationship with the Corinthian church. Um, Paul would talk about him uh, continuing the work. He says, I planted and Apollos watered. All right. And, and so we know, we know that the, and, and the, the, the Corinthian church got it all goofy because they were like, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, <laughs> I got y'all beat. I'm of Jesus. You know, and they, they did that whole thing that, that Paul rebukes them for in first Corinthians. But we know that Apollo showed up. He landed in Achaia and, and, and without doubt, he landed in Corinth because that's where he went to be. The other thing about this is says that he, he helped the people. Uh, and I think that it's, it's wonderful because Apollos understands leadership. I was talking to another pastor the other day and I was talking about, you know, our, our job, the work that we do is we go low, period. You're not, it's not like being the manager at Safeway. <laughs> you're called to go low. You're called to serve. You're called to come alongside. You're called to sacrifice. I mean, this, this, this is all part of the calling. And he gets that because it says that he helped those who had believed through grace. He's going low. He is, he's leading from the bottom up, not from the top down. Top-down leadership drives me crazy, but I'm not going to even go there. We're out of time. So from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, uh, apparently Apollos had a remarkable ministry there. Uh, talk about that more uh, another time, but uh, he continued the work that Paul had started. So as we wrap up, I want to look at three things here uh, that we can sort of extract from the message this morning, from the text that we're looking at this morning. And the first is this, in our lives, gang, look for God in the natural, supernatural. God used some hostile Jews and, and a Roman proconsul to ensure the well-being of this infant Corinthian church. Uh, and I, I, I look at that, I study that, and I think, oh God, you're just so good. And that he, he, he ensures that this church is going to go forward. I was reminded of that. Uh, Stacy and I went and saw the, the movie. It's playing here in town, by the way. 
the Jesus Revolution, the story of the, the origins of Calvary Chapel. Uh, I was thinking about that and about how, and Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith, used to tell us, you know, about God working in the natural, supernatural. And it's true. Uh, God used the burdened heart of a preacher's wife. And they don't show that in the film very much. It's one of the things that I wish that they'd have played on more. But it was Chuck's wife, Kay. She's going to her husband saying, Chuck, look at all these hippies. They're just wandering around aimlessly. During the Vietnam War, everybody wanted peace and love. And she said, we've got that. We can, we can give these kids what they're looking for through Jesus Christ. So he uses a preacher's wife and then he uses some Haight-Ashbury hippie that was really messed up in some ways to accomplish miraculous, supernatural things in the lives of countless people ever since. I mean, we're part of that. Not just because of the name on the church, but because of the Jesus movement, the Jesus revolution that came about 50 years ago that in many aspects is still going today. I praise God that, yeah, I'm not a a Chuck Smith groupie or anything like that. I have a deep respect for the man because he was greatly used. Just a guy. And one of the things I loved about him is he knew until the day he went to be with the Lord, he was just a guy. And he was fulfilling the ministry that God had given him. So look for God in the natural, supernatural. Look for him in the daily details of your life. He's there. He wants to pour his spirit out. He wants to show you his faithfulness in your life. The second thing I want to talk about is, are you teachable? I look at Apollos' life and I think, you know, humility and being teachable go hand in hand. Uh, as I mentioned, Apollos, could have, he could have just blown off Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, pff, whatever. He says, really? No, you, you have some information that I could benefit. Let me hear. He was teachable. And as I mentioned, it's not just about being book smart either. It's about being teachable in so far as practically applying God's word to your life. Folks, this is not just let's get together every Sunday and do a book report. This is let's get together, let's hear from the Lord. I pray that every Sunday before we get going. Say, Lord, you tell us in your word, my people hear my voice, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. I don't want you to follow me, I want you to follow him. Apply God's word to your life. There's something that the Lord has spoken to you that's just popped out, and it's different for you than it is the person sitting next to you, I'll guarantee. Take that. Apply it to your life. Allow God to do that divine surgery inside of you. And as he does that piece by piece, week after week, day after day, your life is transformed. My life is transformed. That's part of being teached. If you ever have the attitude or you're dealing with somebody who has an attitude of, I've kind of arrived, you want to resist that. Third thing, final thing here, is there is a judgment a final judgment ahead for everybody. It's either the Bema seat, the Bible talks about it extensively, the judgment seat of Christ, or the great white throne of judgment. One or the other. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we read uh, Paul writing here, he says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that, that word there is the same word that we saw here in Acts. It's the Bema seat. 
It's that place where matters are decided. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now I want to be clear. This is not connected to a works-based salvation. I have heard people totally blow the interpretation of that passage. And it's not. The judgment seat of Christ is a message for Christians and only for Christians. And while it in no way nullifies God's grace, it's about gaining or losing rewards. Think about it like this. And because the judgment seat, it was also used, as I mentioned, at sporting events. They used it there as well. Uh, If you win a competition, you get a reward. You get a medal. You get a trophy. If you lose the competition, you're not thrown off the team. (laughs) That's the point. He's not talking about throwing people off the team here. He's saying it's about rewards. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, he he likens the uh, Christian to a building. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, uh, this is a little wordy, but it's really important that we understand the Bema seat in our lives. He says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation and another builds on it. But let each, let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that, is, that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he built, has built on it, endures, that's the gold and silver and precious stones, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the the wood, hay, and the stubble, gone. It's talking about things that we do with right motives, with a right heart, things that we do while as, as Christians that this beam of seat will judge our works, not for salvation, but for rewards. What he says is that it's not a, it's not a punitive thing attached to this. It's just an absence of the reward. Uh, J. Bernard McGee talks about this passage. He says, you know, some of us are going to come in smelling a smoke. <laughs> and I always like that because he's saying that, you know, we're going to get there. Uh, and I, I've heard teaching, I don't want to take the time that, you know, in the millennium that we're going to rule and reign with Christ, is he going to give us different responsibilities based on these? I don't know. What I do know is that thing I want to hear more than anything else when I get there is well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. I can't think of a greater reward. We're told that at the Bema seat that we'll receive, that each Christian, that we'll receive a crown of righteousness from the Lord himself, but that we'll take that thing off and we will throw it back at the feet of Jesus because it's his righteousness is the only reason that we can stand. So understand, don't get head tripped about the Bema seat. I heard somebody say one time, well, some of us will have thicker files than, than others. I don't know. We don't understand all of it, but we do know that it's not a punitive thing. It's a reward thing. The great white throne is entirely different. 
It's for those who have rejected Christ, who have not loved his appearing, or who have lived their life as a sham. And it is based on works. Because if the grace of God is not resting on your life, the only thing that remains is what you've done. When I hear somebody say, well, I've been a good person, I shudder. Who are you basing it on? You or the finished work of Christ? Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, uh, John here says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face uh, the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was no found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. People's names weren't written in that. It says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And dropping down to verse 14, he says, This is the second death. So in God's economy, you can kind of sum it up that there are two births and two deaths available. You're either born twice and die once unless the Lord comes back and we get raptured out of here, which I pray is today. Or you're born once. You never give your life to Christ, so you're never born again. And there's a second death. And that's judgment. That's eternal separation from serious stuff. I don't know about you, but I read this kind of stuff and I feel very secure in my relationship with the Lord, but I also have a sense of urgency for the people around me. The people I know are not going to make it unless they give their lives, give their hearts to Christ, unless they trust him, repent of their sins and embrace Christ. Why? Why did he do all of this? Folks, he did it for love. He did it because God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would simply believe, trust him, wouldn't perish, wouldn't see the great white throne, but would have everlasting life, but would come from the Bema seat rejoicing. Two sides. There is no fence in God's kingdom. There is judgment. I praise God that, uh, and I, I don't know about you, I used to hear Chuck Smith, that people would talk to, they'd say, well, you know, can you tell us about eternal security? And he'd say, don't ask me about yours. As for me, I'm secure eternally. And I praise God that if you love the king and if you are a child of the king and you identify with Christ and you're not caught up in some weird thing, you get to be part of that judgment, not part of this ultimate eternal damnation that comes with the great white throne. That's it. Let's pray. I'm running behind. So Father, uh, oh, a lot of ground to cover this morning. And yet, Lord, I, I pray that again, by your Holy Spirit, you would bring to our remembrance the things that we've studied. I, I know that there are different things for different ones here uh, watching online that you want to speak. So I pray, Father, that you would do your work that as we distill down, as we process, as we work through the things that we've looked at, we looked at a lot this morning, but as we do, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate, that you would bring to the forefront the things that you have for us individually. I love trusting that that's how you do it, Father. And uh, just pray, Father, for each one, that we would... Uh, just simply reflect and that we would simply do business with you as we wrap up. That as we go out of here, Father, we'd be conformed a little more to the image of your son. That's our desire.
Uh, you are our strength. We love you. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.